Welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Join host Matt Arnold for in-depth conversations with artists, designers, entrepreneurs, and civic leaders as he explores how they approach their craft and represent a modern version of the Iowa Idea. This podcast tells the stories of Iowa natives, transplants, and friends who demonstrate the Iowa Idea in the 21st century. Nothing cures fear faster than action. In this episode of the Iowa Idea Podcast, I'm joined by Stephen McDonald from Cork, Ireland. Stephen is a leadership, performance, resilience, and team development consultant, facilitator of transformation and cultural change professional who has been helping organizations across a broad range of industries globally. Stephen believes that every person and team has an abundance of unexplored potential. Stephen's passion and purpose are to support individuals and teams to unleash this potential and help organizations build competitive advantage. Stephen has a diverse background with varied knowledge achieved through leadership positions with organizations including the Gaelic Players Association. From a sporting perspective, Stephen has represented the Cork Senior Hurling Team from 2010 to 2020, and he captained the team in 2016 and 2017 to Munster Championship success. Now, I'm not sure if Stephen and I are related, but I come from a line of McDonald's who left Cork in the 1800s and settled in what is now Clinton, Iowa. This Cork to Clinton connection predates Iowa statehood, so it was fun to collaborate with a McDonald in Cork for this episode. We dig into Stephen's background and experience, including captaining Cork's championship hurling team. Stephen and I go deep into team and group dynamics. Stephen shares some great perspectives related to the conditions and environment that needs to be in place for teams to succeed and thrive. High-performing teams just don't happen. Stephen shares some of the key conditions, essentials, and enablers for a successful team. It was a pleasure having Stephen join me on the podcast. I hope you enjoy the episode. Stephen, welcome to the Iowa Idea Podcast. Uh, it is a pleasure to have you here. Uh, if you don't mind, for our listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Yeah, so thanks a million, Matt, for bringing me here. As you can see from my accent, you're like, where is this person from? So English, or I suppose English-speaking language is my first language, and sometimes people would, you know, think that it's a, a second language of mine, but it's a first language, and speaking very fast is, you know, a part of where I'm from. So I'm from a place in Ireland called Cork, and Matt has good uh, traditions back in Cork as well. I'm sure the listeners would have heard that some sometime along the way but yeah so county cork in ireland and born and raised here and i um yeah i suppose look if you know went to, i went to a, you know a pretty pretty normal school and i got an education here in cork it was in engineering and um you know i pivoted from engineering to, to what i do know and it's, it's very much you know polar opposite engineering very detailed you know the nuts and bolts to know you know being you know an, you know an, an effective team coach and leadership coach and high performance and performance and um it's it's gone very well but you know in between all of that i suppose a big part of my life is sport and you know i'm not sure if 
if any of the listeners would be aware of, you know, the indigenous sport in Ireland called hurling, H-U-R-L-I-N-G, I have to spell it because when I talk <laughs> right, to right. Americans, they might think it's curling, which it sure as hell isn't, known as the opposite, very fast-paced, dangerous sport. But um, yeah, so I think that was a big part of my life and I played that at, a, you know, at the highest level. And, you know, it's an amateur sport, so I was very lucky to play, you know, an amateur sport more or less at a professional level. And, you know, the money generated in Ireland as a result of hurling is in around 300 million. You're playing in front of 80,000 people, you know, 60,000 people on a regular basis when it comes to championships. So just to give people an idea of the level of competition that, you know, I was exposed to over over years. And I was lucky to captain, you know, my team and we won, you know, we won a championship and you know, all great experiences that you know have shaped me and have made me, I suppose, more, you know, a better and more valuable consultant into organizations as a result of, you know, being involved in that environment. So all of that has played a huge part to my life. And also, you know, I have to mention the most important thing is, you know, I've got a beautiful partner and we've uh, a beautiful baby boy, nine months old, and we've got a family and two dogs as well that yeah, they're uh, <laughs> going to like so yeah that's um the aspect of my life well uh con- congratulations uh i i can't speak for you but for me as a as a parent uh it is unbelievable how much the uh the child then sets the the new dynamics for the house as far as who's getting sleep <laughs> who's oh, yeah. who's staying sane like, absolutely mass so at nine months that's that's the the age of our baby sonny his name is so I think we, I would say, I would, I'd be happy to say we've, we've been through the hardest, I think the hardest part of it, but you know, it's getting easier, but it'll never be easy, but it's, it's about the journey and I'm enjoying every minute of it. Oh, that's great. And what kind of dogs do you have? They're actually Pomeranians. So okay. they're, you know, highly intelligent little dogs, but yeah, even, in, even as a result of their intelligence, they actually don't know how big they are because they think they're a hell of a lot bigger than what they are. They go around and they, you know, they take on any other dog 10 times their size, which is something I always have to keep an eye on. Always have to have them on the lead. And, but they're, they're great dogs. Oh, that's great. great dogs, yeah. yeah. So, uh, Stephen, I have not communicated this with listeners before, but just to make a connection to Iowa is that uh, my maternal grandmother, uh, last name McDonald, uh, and go, goes through a line of McDonald's that actually uh, came to uh, Iowa before it was even a state. So when it was a frontier territory in the U.S., uh, that's where my relatives from Cork uh, came from. And, and actually not just the McDonald's, have a lot of Cork relatives. And a while ago, I did 23andMe. Are you familiar with 23andMe? It's the ancestry kit where you you basically oh, yes. yeah. spit, yeah. spit in a vial. And yeah, it's uh, about a little over two... I'm mo- I'm mostly of kind of uh, Irish and French descent, and uh, of of that though, they they do a heat map now of like where your genetic relatives are, and Cork is the hot spot for me with uh, the vast majority of my my DNA. So uh, I I've never been, but on one one hand, I want to think it's a very beautiful place with very intelligent people, but I. Also, for my family, I think there might be a few crazy people running around in Cork. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I can attest to both of those things. It's a beautiful place, but yeah, there's a lot of um, great people and also people of uh, unique, unique, so we, like, like everywhere. There, there's, there's a possibility that we could be related, but uh, wanted to uh, 
beyond that, get get you on the show to talk you talk to you about some of these things. Um, I love uh, uh, one hurling, and I'm I'm familiar too with. Uh, 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 the need to explain it to to folks stateside uh because it does people think you might be yeah. saying curling uh and to your point yeah. it's uh almost polar opposites in mm-hmm. uh speed risk of injury and uh if you don't mind can you tell me a little bit though you you know it's an indigenous sport to to ireland um uh, i think the question might be why uh because it is yeah. such a uh, fast and violent game yeah it, it's it's it, look it, it's a hard one to explain and i i'm not sure of the answer why it's just in ireland and if it ever has been outside of ireland it's been irish people born and bred in ireland that have took it outside of ireland you know and they've you know immigrated and created communities in that in their place where they can play that game and that like you'd be like there's there's you know in pockets all over the world you know every country nearly you would find some hurling community so it's it's great to see that but it's never been played at a competitive competitive level outside of Ireland, and it's a hugely hugely skillful sport. And a lot of the like I suppose to be you know you find a lot of the guys at that elite level have been you know playing since they were very very young. So you know you know they've kind of gotten the handle of the skills you know when they were children, and you know habituated that over time and became very normal for them. And you'd find someone that has never played before that would pick up a hurley, which is the stick you use. And, and and the slitter which is the ball like ba- like the baseball you know they find it very hard to do the basic stuff right so it needs to be you know playing at a ground le- played from the ground up in, in overseas countries for it to be actually a competitive sport over there as well which which, which it isn't and I think the Irish people and the, the GAA which is the governing body are very much um, you know keen to maintain the amateur status of the sport and for it to be kind of brought across the world and and create you know play competitively competitively there's a risk that it might go professional and then um, you know that's obviously something that they're not willing to take that risk but i'd have probably difference of opinion but i won't, I won't get into it yeah no thank you and um you know my, rough roughly for listeners stateside uh and please please correct me if i'm wrong i don't i don't want i'm painting with broad strokes so i don't want it to be offensive but to me uh it seems like it's it's a cross between the sport of lacrosse and ice hockey uh but that you can you can you can pick up the ball or it's the slither is that yeah that's what they call it but we, yeah call it but you, a, you, you, call can, it you, you pick yeah. it up and hit it while you're running which is a little different like a little bit like lacrosse but there's no net to hold on like the stick you're balancing you're bouncing it around and uh how how fast can that go when somebody hits it off the end of their stick for some reason 60 miles an hour is something that crops up my head more even 110 miles an hour or something there was it was caught it was captured at one point in time and it, it was the figure work was, was outrageous and um yeah it's just i suppose we get used to it and you know we get used to like i've I've broken broken five fingers broke my hand i've broke my um elbow you know two toes i suppose like so it's a risky you know you take and you know it depends on how you play and i play the game very much you know i get i get involved and that's my position as well is to to be involved and as a result of that you know you're you know multiple injuries and and that's just the part and, part and parcel of it. So it's, you know, you take the risk by stepping into it and you'd, you'd have a lot of guys that would potentially have weddings upcoming and stuff like that. And 
you know, they'd be nervous of playing games. Sometimes they wouldn't play for for that for a couple of months beforehand, just in case they'd break something or, or do something like that. But you know, it's a great sport. You yeah. know, and I've um, I've had a great time playing, and I'm still playing at a lesser level now than than the elite level. Given you know the business is doing so well, I need to um, and the baby I need to give that time. Right, right. Those things. Yeah. Uh, thank you. I and. Uh... A good a good friend of mine here. He played college hockey at Michigan State, which is a uh, you know as far as amateur hockey, it's a kind of a premier program uh, in North America. And uh, he was captain as well. But one of the funny stories from him that I found is uh, this friend. Of mine, he's a he's an introvert, uh, and uh, his senior year he was captain. And he said the hardest part was because he'd have to give a big fiery speech to get his team all you know revved mm-hmm. up. And he said he was it would take him a few minutes to recover because he was <laughs> as an introvert trying to get everybody yeah. riled up. But yeah. uh, what lessons do you take away from being a captain, being a leader in an, a dynamic athletic sport to uh, you know your, your consultancy and then working with teams where context is different, but I think there's a lot of similarities between good teams on the field and, and good teams uh, trying to do extraordinary things. But do you mind talking about, some of those parallels yeah look it's 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 a, it's a loaded i suppose question that you know i could go and kick off in many different strands but yeah. the first thing that, that came up was um kind of wrong some some lessons that kind of i brought across and you know when i was first made captain and you know i was kind of you know the, the, the management sat me down and they said look players are better you know when you play in your you're in the game, players around you play better as a result of you being there, right? So so that was that, you know, when I heard that, like I mean, that just really struck me, like, you know, hit me hard and because that's you know, ultimately that's that's what I wouldn't I was going to say leadership, but that's what life is all about. So that you, you when you when you live life that people around you, you know, are, are you know, living a better life or, you know, being you know, living their best life and most fulfilled life as a result of you being in their life and you know when hurling is a microcosm and sport is a microcosm for life in many ways so for that to be reflected back to me was was powerful and you know i suppose when i you know you know it's kind of a sweet spot project that from my consultancy and for what i do is to um to work with a leadership team and the leader as well of that team and very much you know my work with leader is for for him to be the role model and for that for his um for his action and his character to bring out the best in his team as well and you know, it's great that I actually uh, I'm in a position to work with a team on a team coaching journey as well. So that, that was definitely, you know, when I work as a, as a consultant, I'm, I'm definitely always facilitating the guys to always be better, you know, step into high levels of performance. And, you know, sometimes that might mean taking two steps back to take three steps forward or, you know, vice versa and facilitating difficult conversations or, you know, providing some, you know, clarity and some tools around how they can, you know, come together to execute their strategy a bit better and, you know, working with team dynamics and stuff. So, yeah, and, and 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 the list goes on. But definitely, that was that was one of the first things that was said to me when I was kind of being made captain, and it's you know one of the strongest things that has resonated and stuck with me. So I wanted to share that definitely, Matt. You know, yeah, I like that. I like that. What what's coming to my mind as you say that too is a a, a different level of self awareness, right? Like if because you're if you're setting the tone or people are looking to you. Uh, you got to make sure that you are you're you're basically walking the talk living the living the the identity that you want for your team yeah. right and so like if you get down or frustrated knowing that 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 could chain out with your team and and 
I hadn't thought about this before, but almost that at performance that you have to be on and and there's there's you have to be a little bit more self-aware of what you're you're presenting is that yeah. fair no that's a, that's an absolute definitely more than fair assessment and you know even you mentioned earlier around big the big speeches before the game <laughs> and stuff like that so you know i when i was when i was captain it was uh you know i'd always kind of you know the management would say their piece and then you know they'd leave and give us space to ourselves and Quite often, you know, a lot of the time my speech would be to nearly reverse everything the manager just said because there would be a lot of anxiety that the manager would bring into it and the management would bring in and nerves and, you know, there'd be a lot of argy-bargy and shouting and just stuff like this. But, you know, we're in there and we have to go through a warm-up. You know, the game's a half an hour away. So we can't be leaving the dressing room now all riled up because the game is, that's what you need to be in 30 minutes' time, not right now. Right. So I'd all, you know, so I'd be very calm and composed and I'd be very much... You know, and I am an extroverted, and I am extroverted, but what I would display in those in those moments of speeches would be very, very much, you might say, very introverted, very calm, composed, and talking to the guys around. Look, let's forget everything, you know. You know, let's let's be here and know right where we are. You know, you know, the management would say, look in the crowd and remember your parents are up there, or your family are up there, and do them proud and stuff like that. Like all these things, all these, all all that stuff are external motivation factors and things that might give you more anxiety than actual um you know drive to perform well so you need to remove all of that and you need to just take it right down to where you are right here right now we're not going to play the game right now we're going to do the warm-ups we step into that we remember you know what our tasks are what our focus is and as we and as we step up and, re- and also we remember the work we've done right and also then as you step through the warm-up then you start to get a bit louder then you start to gain the more energy and by the time the game comes we're fired up and then you have a quick moment before the game where you can just put everyone together and you know bang heads and out, yeah. and out you go so so the, yeah it's just the, the context always changes but quite often I found myself um, in the dressing room before, before the game just kind of bringing all the guys together and unifying the guys and just being very calm you know and that calmness I suppose as you mentioned that calmness and, and sureness then would filter across to the guys and you know we'd, be, we'd all go to them together and calm and ready to go I love it. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, one of the things, and and, and I'm going to want to back up uh, about your journey a little bit too in engineering, but just while we're still talking about sports, one of the things that I've come across on the podcast and has been, fa- so for me, um, you know, I also have like background in, in improv theater, right? Just in, and that's, that's awesome. And, yeah. and cool, I, t- I talk to musicians, I talk to uh, like I said, my, so my friend that was a hockey player, you know, he's an executive uh, in an American financial company, you know, and, and has gone and, you know, he uh, went to Wharton. He was a math major, right? Like smart dude in business. Another person that owns an improv theater in Minneapolis, played college football. And when I talk to musicians and athletes in business, I think one of the biggest things that surprises us is how much day-to-day life in organizations is ad hoc. Uh, even when they come to big events where like at least Amer- like I'll use American football for a reference, you're practicing yeah. five days a week, uh, a game, you know, and, and think, thinking about the hours, probably like 15 hours, not counting film work for one hour of play, right? Like yeah. uh, on the game. Yeah. Time. And yeah. the, like you think about a theater ensemble, the amount of work they put in for one production. Right? Yeah. And and thinking about that, that good, in my opinion, good teams just don't happen, right? It's it's an ongoing practice. It's a dedication. And 
what I find interesting, a lot of businesses uh, expect like high performing teams and like great, great presentations and great projects, but they rarely spend the time to cultivate that, to yeah. practice or rehearse. And just, I'm kind of curious from your perspective as, as an elite athlete, leading team, and now leading organizations, do you, do you see a similar gap or it, is this, is this resonating what I'm saying? Yeah, no, it totally is. And look, again, there's a lot of things I can say here, but the first yeah. thing I'd say is um, the environment is so important. So, you you know, a lot of the time I'm talking to a leader and that I'm coaching and, and they're talking about their team or, or someone else in the organization that's, you know, we, we need to do something here because they're, you know, behaving very negatively and their behavior is starting to be a problem. And they're kind of focused on the, pro- they're focused on the person, right? That, that person is the problem. And the first thing I always do is, is step back and look at the environment, the environment that the person is operating within. And um, and it's the same with conflict within a team. If there's a conflict within a team, you blame the people and you blame the person for being bad, but look at the environment. And when I say the environment, I mean, you know, what's the, the workload on a team? What's the pressure on a team? Do they have the right resources? Do they have opportunities if they do a good job? You know, what are their work practices? What are their meetings like? You know, what's the management like of the team? What's the leadership like of the team? You know, everything, you know, filters into that context, filters into the environment, and then that will dictate then the behavior that, that you see within the team. So, so that's that's one thing there that I'd say on on that matter. And um yeah, so I suppose the you know, when it comes to high performing teams within organizations, there's like you said it right, they don't just happen and it's not you can't just expect a team, you can't just put a group of people together and expect them to go ahead and, and do great do great work and have great teamwork. There needs to be some conditions in place. And you know, I'm actually very fortunate to have been certified by um, the six team conditions are the team diagnostic survey Matt I know you're aware of that that's um, Ruth Wagaman and, and the guys in, in Harvard and, and Richard Hackman over decades would have studied teams and I suppose studied teams across every industry every discipline from sport and, and more so in organisations and they looked at okay look, what are the kind of common conditions that are in place for the best teams in the world you know what do they have common across what they do and identify six conditions that, you know, that are common there. And that's, you know, you're looking to build those conditions in place and, you know, we can get into the conditions really quick. Might be a good idea just for the guys on, on the other side of the the podcast. Just um, That'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. So they call them the essentials and the enablers. So the first three conditions are the essentials. And, and really what these conditions are are the foundations for, for great teams, for good teams. If you don't have, these three conditions in place, then you might as well, you know, you don't have a team. And look, first and foremost, you know, are they a real team? First, you need to get that right. Does the team know who's on the team? You know, do they know, you know, you know, are they bounded? Are they independent in what they do, right? So, so having a real team and understanding you're a real team is the first component. Second component then is compelling purpose. So do they know why they exist? But, but even beyond that is, is there a reason for existence clear? You know, is it challenging so that the team will just push themselves to be a bit better? Or is it consequential? You know, you know that's the you know what do they understand the impact as a result of their purpose that they have in the world? Do they understand what it looks like in play? So we exist too, and as a result of our existence, you know, this is the impact we're going to have, and this is how we're going to bring it to life in our everyday interactions and in, in everything we do. So those three components would be the kind of foundations for, for you know, for good teamwork and great teams. Then you go to the enablers of the next three conditions, 
and what they are really are the kind of fast tracks or accelerants of performance for the team. And they're really centered around kind of the structure of the team. So, you know, science would say that the ideal team size is actually five. That's what science says. And just a yep. bit of background of the science, anything below five, you minimize the bandwidth of the team or the kind of skill set of the team. So five is a great number for kind of collective skill set, collective intelligence that the team can do great things. But when you start to go above that, let's say, you know, you're talking eight, nine, 10 and above, what would happen is, you know, you got too much on a team and sub teams will set to form because not enough, there's not enough room for everyone to be heard and valued. So the leadership is be undermined and sub teams are not coming together, kind of doing, doing work together rather than being in that name or being in that, um, you know, that, that number where you can all be heard value, be heard equally and, and do great work together. So as soon as you go, as soon as the numbers go up, you minimize, you know, you start to come, come back down the other side of the curve and you minimize the ability and the, the environment for teams to do great work because it's too yeah. much. Steven, so and on that one, and I, I agree with yeah. you because my uh, my master's was in applied communication theory and team dynamics, and uh, so I've Absolutely. been been working with teams yeah. for a long time. And uh, like one of one of the things for me that I try to communicate to people too is, uh, like you said, when you start creeping above five, now you're also you're spending more energy managing the team rather than managing the work, right? Because it itself is, it, it becomes a small community that you have to really work, you know, so there's energy that's going to just managing that. And it's because it becomes a little unwieldy, right? And, but to your point, if you don't have enough, you're not getting the, like the, the secret sauce of team dynamics, different perspectives. Uh, yeah, but yeah it, it always is coming down to kind of that magic number. And I don't, uh, on the state side, uh, you have uh, Bezos from Amazon, uh, mm -hmm. One of the ways that he framed it, you've heard the idea of the two pizza team. Oh yeah, so if, there's, yeah. if you can't feed the team with two pizzas, you you know, <laughs> you, 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 and meetings as well, you've got you don't right. have a meeting. It's too much, yeah. Right, there's <laughs> the team is too that big. Was brilliant, yeah. And, and sorry, then, I cut you off on the uh, on the uh, enablers or accelerants. Yeah, look, there's one other aspect I want to just mention there before I get to. So it's look where we are now is we've we've looked at the essentials and that was the real team, compelling purpose, and right people. And, you know, within the diagnostic, your team will get a score on where to sit within that. And then we moved to the enablers, which are the accelerants, and we're, we're focusing on sound structure now. And we're just about to go to the next one, but just to stay on sound structure just for a moment, because there was something you mentioned that I want to just concentrate on. And, you know, there was a study done by Google, and everyone knows the study, Project Aristotle. Google have thousands of teams, and, and, and obviously they, they focused on, okay, what are the best teams doing? And how can we replicate that to the rest of the team so that they can step up the performance? And it was very interesting what they found. And, you know, I kind of look at it in a way that, you know, two sides to a coin. And the first side is conversational turn-taking was a huge component of the best teams and what they done. So if there were six on a team, everybody spoke one six at a time. So I often step in with a team and, you know, as part of the assessment phase and the work I do, you know, I might do a bit of observation and, you know, all the time then I'd interview the team members and then do, do the diagnostic then on the flip side. That might be over the course of a month. I might identify, you know, in that phase that here's a team of six, but in reality, it's actually a team of two or three because these two or three people are dominating the conversation, dominating the decisions. And, you know, the, the ability for the team to perform at its best is very much minimized because it's only two or three people and you're only tapping into the skill set, you know, the experience and uniqueness and perspectives of those two or three people and the other people then are, you know, 
aren't involved, so they're not actually impacting the performance of the team. So conversational turn taking was the first side to the coin. So again, that's six people on the team are sticking with six at a time. And um, you need to maintain that or five people one fifth at a time. And on the flip side of that, then is that what they call is ostentatious listening, you no know, big word, but ultimately what it means is that when you spoke, you were absolutely listened to, you were valued, your your voice was valued, what you had to share was valued. And this was that then was a trigger to psychological safety, which was, you know, people bringing their best, the best ideas, their best effort. And that's again, you know, a sign of a high performing team. Yeah. Thank, thank you. Uh, one of the, I want to jump back to the essentials just uh, where uh, uh, from a, a, a communication dynamic on teams too, is um, the notion of primary tension and secondary tension in teams. Yeah. And that primary tension is always that social awkwardness, right? When a team's coming together, like uh, who, who are we, are we going to get along? Who are these people? Yeah. And, and, and then why are we here? Right. So like you said, like getting that foundation of you should, like, who's here uh, getting to know, like, and, and getting to know somebody beyond just the functional role that they might be playing, like on an org chart, right. That this is a yeah. person or this is a real person, but then the, uh, the, the secondary tension that, that tends to plague teams is the debate over how to get the work done, right? So that, that primary yeah. tension is always that just social awkwardness. And then, and then those team dynamics. So when you start talking about some of those enablers and having those conditions, I mean, those from the design and innovation words, I would use, that's being intentional about setting the conditions for the team. Yes. Right? That again, uh, high-performing teams just don't happen, right? Uh, yeah. And some are I, I, some are more uh, skilled, maybe right at at facilitate. But uh, even even with some skilled individual, I loved I loved just hearing what you were saying about uh, a few people dominating, and then others yeah. might they might check out. They they don't feel valued, right? And uh, and then when you really need them, it's like reverse on a car. When you when you need it, you really need it. And if you have these team players that you haven't cultivated, and you might really need it. They're not going to not because they're bad people, but right though you you haven't you haven't optimized the machinery so to speak. Yeah, and it's not that you said it. It's not that they're bad people. It's just over time, they've habituated the team is habituated that the culture of the team has been right. like that's what happens within the team if they don't identify why they exist and how they need to behave and their operating principles, their norms of conduct, their work practice, you know, how they're going to activate it and how they're going to achieve what they want to achieve. If they don't step into having that conversation around, look, this is these are things that will help us and these are things that actually won't help us. Then they take a risk of the things that won't help them actually being coming commonplace. And that's what happens is they're habituated over time that these people actually step up more than the others and that actually grows and manifests itself in, in mediocre um, performance then. Um, yeah, so just another aspect of some structure as well, is, as I mentioned, is, is those kind of, you know, those norms of conduct and that ability of you know understanding how we need to behave and what we're principled about that will step us toward you know being a high performing team and um you know work practices around how they meet and come together and you know how they lead their, their own teams and so that's all that that's all you know in that sound structural component and supportive context then is the next enabler again so that's you know do they have the right resources to do the job they need to do um you know, resources from every aspect, material resources, resources from component of a skill set within the team, experience within the team, the right leadership, 
or you know, is there do they have the right resource to overcome roadblocks? You know, is there opportunities for the team? They do great work. You know, will they get rewarded for that? And um, you know, do they have the right connections with the stakeholders they need to have to do a great job? So again, supportive context goes into all that. And then the last aspect of the enablers is team coaching, which is great. You know, obviously that that brings me into a lot of teams, but you know, what I'd say here is that my role as the team consultant and the team coach is to develop that within the team so that when I step away, that the team is able to activate that within itself. So they'll have someone within the team you know and all the team members essentially and in particular leader that can intervene in the team processes in ways that promote the best use of the collective resources of the team and able to, to enable them to maintain consistency and performance and just get the work done in in a consistent manner as well so they are the conditions that you know you know when you step when you, when you do these things will or when you activate these areas will support the team to do great work and i've worked with teams you know that have been together years and also teams that have just been newly formed and just one of the projects I worked with uh, a team, very interesting team actually, to, uh, here in Ireland and it was a healthcare facility being developed. So this was a new healthcare facility in Ireland. First of its kind, Matt, so it was a great project to be involved in and, you know, the Swift Care facilities in Ireland, so VHI Swift Care in Ireland, they have facilities that they care for major or minor illnesses. So people are coming in with, you know, the common colds, flus, broken bones, you know, different things like that, sprains. So doctors and nurses and admin staff are, you know, in, in all of those facilities. So what they wanted to do was, and what they did do, was they wanted to do more than that, provide a better service and do more than that. So they brought in nutritionists, um, psychotherapists, physiotherapists, so they, they, they stepped it up. And no, instead of having just doctors, nurses, and admin staff, they also have a whole host of more professions. So they acted, So I, I was I was um, contracted in to work with the team, um, twenty two people before they started, and you know I, I even though the team I couldn't do the diagnostics over with them because they did, actually didn't even know each other at the time. But what I did do was I built the conditions for them throughout the work we done, and um, so when they did step into their facility, they stepped into you know after hitting the ground running. And it's gone very well. So it just gives an idea that you don't have to be a team to be able to get a diagnostic like this and, and, and up your game. You can be a brand new team and you need to set yourself up. And you said that, Matt. Yeah. yeah, what I've seen, uh, most of the companies I've worked with are uh, headquartered in the in the U.S. But um, you know, one, one of the things that, that I have found just over my career that I just find is more and more as the work becomes complex, right? We need more teams. And a lot of times we do have ad hoc teams right, that have to be put together and for lack of better terms, built quickly, right? And uh, so we demand a lot from of, of teams, but uh, at least stateside, educationally, we really don't like train folks to be team members. Uh, and it's just, it's just an interesting dynamic when, uh, I, so I don't, I don't know, uh, if that resonates or or is similar to, with yours, because I know you're you're working with with teams, but I what I find interesting is how much we need teams and how yeah. rarely we're explicit uh, prior to jumping into a business world about really how teams operate or even how to be a good team player, identify how you can contribute to those essentials and enablers. Yeah, so I think there's there's very you know it, it was. Traditionally, teams within organizations are 
very much task orientated and get the job done at all costs. But you know that that mentality actually breeds poor team, you know, and and that that standard actually would would translate across the organisation and continue. And again, as I say, habituate over time. And you know, there might be a very difficult project arise, and that way of doing things will not be enough to actually get this project done. And it will come back, and it will you know the team will have to face up and be accountable against you know, mediocre performance at some stage, even if it's not now, even if they do not care now what they're doing, you will and it, and it will come back. And um, that's what I find, you know, teams kind of think they're doing okay. And even though the team performance is poor and the members within the team aren't satisfied, you know, they just look once they're getting a job done, they just get by and eventually it'll, it'll break down. Thank you. I want to step back a little bit. So you, you mentioned that uh, engineering was uh, the path you were going down. I'm kind of curious on what interested you about engineering and then also also the switch and and i know this might be kind of provocative it's not meant to be provocative but uh working with teams right like at least for me, it's always described as like a soft skill but it really is a hard skill right it's a hard <laughs> but but kind of yeah. curious about going from like an engineering mindset to a uh kind of a human-centered mindset with teams yeah so i i first of all i i done engineering because I just uh, felt that it would be a good career, right? I did, at that stage of my life, I I didn't have the awareness to really understand, you know, what what I could do and what I wanted to do in life. So I just picked something in in college and done it that I felt potentially could be it, but really not not having a full understanding. Is I think a lot of people might relate to, and um, that are listening in. So I done that. I went to college and I done, you know, it was a good degree, a solid degree, and I came out with it. You know, I got us. I done well in college. And I ended up working with a consultancy firm. They're a global firm called Arup, A-R-U-P, Arup Consulting Engineers. Great experience. And, you know, something within me always knew that this, that it was a stepping stone to something else. And, you know, it was about four, kind of four years in, four and a half years into my engineering career. I was very lucky to, you know, get, get promoted and be involved in kind of, you know, as a lead engineer and lead structural engineer on projects and working with multidisciplinary teams and you know it was, it was a great experience for me and clients like apple and you know striker and johnson and johnson and being a lead engineer for those guys so a great experience and just uh, there was a time when i was when i was inside narrow and i was given responsibility to um i suppose to work with teams and you know the, the, i suppose the leadership in Arup would have seen me as someone that was good with teams and within that you know i suppose I was young to be kind of given that responsibility and I knew then that this is actually my highest point of contribution. You know, this is the, this is what I can do and give to the world that can make create the highest impact. You know, another engineer can come along and do do a good job as an engineer just like I'm doing, but what I'm doing right now with teams, I don't think so. So that gave me the kind of confidence to know that this is actually something I want to pursue. And that was about four and a half years ago. So inevitably I, I upskilled an executive coach and done an international diploma same in leadership and you know every year I've got you know three or four things that I'm doing that's upskilling just because I'm curious and I'm I'm very passionate about that and you know I just started to get clients and um one thing led to another and and it, it brought me to where I am right now so um I think that was one of the first questions Matt that you asked I don't yeah. know how to do uh, the, the kind of the next phase I think the next question you asked Matt was the the kind of synergy between both is it kind of engineering mindset to Right. I think because stereotypically it's seen like in engineering is more uh, like strong, deductive, inductive reasoning uh, yep. and 
And a lot of times team dynamics and, and the human side of things are, at least in the States, are labeled soft skill. Like, but it's those soft skills that that seem to really dictate if if an organization yeah. or team is going to succeed. It and and they're not mutually exclusive. But I'm kind of curious on, you know, the, the switch from almost an engineering mindset to uh, much more kind of soft skill side with team dynamics. Absolutely, Matt. And look, the one thing I'd say is that there's so much consultants out there that are working, you know, with leaders and with teams, and you know. You know, a couple of years ago, you know, I was asked them um, what separates you from these guys or what, what be your, you know, what's unique to you and what you do. And I, you know, I very quickly kind of, you know, drew an answer up that, you know, made a lot of sense and kind of answers the question from what you're asking, Matt, is that, you know, being an engineer and very, you know, structural engineering, which is very detailed and, and that detailed orientation, it enables me to support teams in a way, in particular around the strategy execution around look their goals this is what they need to achieve this is this is it these are the big goals for the year the macro goals you know i've a very unique mindset around how to achieve those goals because i was faced with very complex problems as an engineer and i remember my manager told me once upon a time and I never forgot it he said it's a difficult problem or a complex problem is a series of simple steps done well so i bring that mindset across and we'll identify what that complex problem is or that macro goal i want to achieve and we break it down into micro goals and process goals and we read action and work towards those goals and you know it's it's you step through a couple number of process goals and before you know it you achieve the macro goal and um you know there's there's actually software I use as well for the strategy execution and that is that is very powerful and it kind of brings in that methodology and um the other aspect of it as well is kind of just made me more well-rounded because my natural or my more habituated way of doing things is to to be at that kind of team level and very um you know, expressive and outgoing and optimistic and people orientated. But when I was forced to be task orientated, if you know, I'm I, I got very comfortable being very adaptive and flexible. So I think that's a sign of peak performance is that you're able to, as the context changes, that you're able to be adaptable. Sometimes you need to be very task orientated. Sometimes you need to be very people orientated. But you can find people very rigid in that task or very rigid in their people side of it and not very adaptive. And that's suboptimal performance. So I'm very um, adaptable as a result of my engineering background and my my natural tendency to be people focused and in that space. So it's 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 been been a great experience. I I love that. One one of the things that that that's making me think of too is um, the notion of different leadership styles and context matters. Like in times yeah. where we we do need lots of uh disciplined detail work times where we need to cultivate maybe the social side of of a team other times where we need to um you know explore and learn but uh for me sometimes i break it down to like theory x theory y theory z of like kind of leadership right like uh, uh command and control sometimes sometimes laissez-faire sometimes in between and my dad was a uh he was an officer in the fire department and like, he would talk to me about like when, when a fire is happening, it's command and control, right? Because we've given people commands, we've trained them. But also if I told you to go on the South side of the wall, I'm assuming you're there. So if I need to call yeah. people back, if, if I let everybody run around, it can create more danger. So like 
in certain contexts, theory X, and then he said when they would return to the firehouse, they would double check, right? Like, yeah. hey, here's what did that hold up? Did the rules make sense? And and then they'd have a flat conversation. He wasn't he wasn't the officer then, right? They were all feeding back what they what they heard, and yeah. then that might adjust what they'll do. And then in the and then beyond that in the firehouse, it was as long as you're not breaking the rules and you're nice to each other you know, be yourself, right? But it, yeah. the, con the, you know, I've always appreciated that the context matters. My dad didn't study groups. He didn't study, but, you know, some of those natural things where that context sometimes dictates. And so what I was hearing from you too, is almost the ability to switch gears, right? To, to step on the clutch on, on yeah. what you need and how to be adaptive. That itself seeming to be an important skill these days. Yeah. Adaptability is huge. And, um, there's no doubt in that, and I think you when you have when you have leaders that are very rigid, this is how they've done things always, and this is the way they're always going to do things. It's suboptimal, and it leads to a lot of conflict actually within their own, I suppose, direct reports and the teams they lead. And I think you need to understand the person you're dealing with, and you need to meet them where they're at, and only then will you be able to positively influence them and also be able to help them. And um, that's 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 key. I think, and, you know, understanding your, your team and, you know, is something that I think is very much underestimated in many ways and you're better able to coach and lead them then as a result of that. And sometimes you might need to mentor them because they might not have the adequate skill or, you know, um, motivation level. So you need to change your approach to, to talking to and dealing with and performance, managing that person. Right. Otherwise you might have a rock star performer who's doing very well, you know, you know, very good motivation and skill level. So at that, at that type of person then, what you do is you very much delegate to them, give them responsibility, give them freedom. And instead of you deciding the action, the course of action, you, you flip it right back to them and you ask them, you know, what do you think? And they decide and they grow because of that. But you can't do that with every employee. Right. Right. Yeah. The, uh, and I, I can't help but notice over your, your shoulder, uh, team of teams, uh, Stanley yep. Crystal's book, which uh, I, I loved it. I loved it. What, what was your uh, takeaway from the book? It's, I, I suppose that we're on that point of adaptability and, you know, you know, to be fair to, to Stan and Crystal, he knew very early on that they needed to change how they done things. And they looked at, I suppose, what the enemy was doing and how they done things. They understand the enemy, you know, first and foremost, you need to understand, you know, what you're up against and they deep dive into that and they actually took some learnings and lessons out of what they done and flipped it right back to them and, and brought it into their practice. So I think that, um, and that, taking complexity and making it simple and you can do that and not rushing things and you know slow and smooth and smooth is fast and that approach and, and patience bringing all that into how we done things i think led to you know i suppose and a lot more i was going to say led to their success but i think it played part to it but you know who knows it was ahead of a lot more than that as well right right <laughs> Yeah, I I liked the story about the uh, the the maps that traditionally in the military hierarchy the map was basically a sacred cow that you you know that was what an officer had and I I liked uh, McChrystal's insight that they basically replaced the maps with whiteboards uh, and it was like quick low fidelity prototyping where people could quickly get on the same same page on what was going on uh, yes. but I I really like your insight too about learning from the context of what. What the other, what the other team, what the what the enemy is doing, is is also going to influence uh, yeah. what you're doing. Uh, talk to me just a little bit about Live Unbound. What uh, so uh, we talked about your journey, but we haven't talked explicitly about Live Unbound. And and can you tell me a little bit about what the organization's about? 
Yeah, thanks for providing me that opportunity, Matt. So actually we're doing, we're going to rebrand at the moment. So, you know, I think the name will stay, but it's just going to really kind of, I suppose, highlight, you know, more of what we do in a way. Like I suppose the website at the moment is very much out of date. So I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't say that's a true representation of, of, of what I do. So it's, it's peak performance, Matt. It's, it's, it's high-performing leadership and high-performing teams. And um, I suppose the third aspect of what I do is, is resilience as well. And, um, you know, it's, I suppose, you know, I'm working with a client at the moment and I suppose what I'm doing with, you know, it's a big client of mine and I've got a number of clients with, with you know, I suppose, to give an example, I'm working with their leadership team. I'm working with their, uh, you know, some, some of the leaders on the team and the actual leader of the team, all their own peak performance. And, and also what I'm doing is I'm working with their employees around resilience and connection and well-being. Ultimately, so you know a lot of what I do with teams and leaders is is within resilience. And I suppose about a year and a half ago, when the coronavirus kicked off, the very same team and the very same leader approached me to say, "Look, Steve, a lot of what you do is actually could be very useful for our staff, given what given you know the isolation, the lack of connection, the uncertainty, the anxiety." So I developed a program that um that supports employees and resilience and connection as well at the same time, and it's absolutely um. It's got a 90% NPS, over 300 people have gone through it since then, and uh, it's really going well. And, you know, you find a lot of organizations are actually putting teams through it because the teams go to the side, more connected, more cohesive, more together. And they put leaders through it that would benefit from direct line communication, being able to understand and trust each other more. So it's, um, you know, that that's another component to what I do. But in essence, in two words, it's, it's peak performance and um, everything about that. Love it. Love it. Thank you. Um... One of the things that I, I like to cover with guests too is from a, you know, like basically from a craftsperson perspective is uh, as you're approaching what you do, uh, do you ever feel stuck? And if so, what are your, some of your techniques to get unstuck? Or you could just tell me, Matt, I'm a professional. I don't get stuck. <laughs> no, I, <laughs> I'd, love, I'd love to say that, Matt. But unfortunately, <laughs> I'm going to say, of course, there are times that you know, you I suppose you, you hear the terminology, you, you hit the wall, or you just you just your you find your productivity has gone right down at you know very low and it's a real struggle. So you need to change something. You can't keep going through the struggle because you know you're really wasting your time. So so what do I do in those moments? I suppose the, you know, I, I suppose what I tend to do is I tend to I suppose there's actually you know what I do it I because it's I was going to give a short answer, but I'll give it the, the real answer, and I'll actually fly through the six the six pillars to um I suppose to getting unstuck. I would say are six pillars to you know being at your best, yeah, being fresh, being good, being productive, being efficient, performing at your best. The first one is what I would say is breathe well. So you're breathing, you know, watching how you breathe, meditating, taking some time to actually listen to your bed and effectively breathe. There's a tool I use, box breathing. And, you know, it's ultimately like a box, follow that box and breed. I won't get into it, but for the listeners, if you want to be more efficient in your breeding, which will lead to you being more calm, more balanced, better able to deal with stress, better in control of your physiology, then box breeding is a tool that can help you do that. And quite often I find myself in moments that I get stuck just doing some rounds of box breeding to take me out of that um, poor state that I'm in and back into a more optimal state. Box breeding can actually do that. Um, and that box breeding arrived and was developed by the Navy SEALs many, many years ago to help them to better deal with stress, stressful environments and to perform better. 
So breathe well is the first one. Obviously, sleep well. So you need to make sure you get a good night's sleep. That will lead to more optimal and more productivity. Uh, I won't get into the actual tips and tricks within that conscious <laughs> time. Eat and hydrate well is the next tip. So you know you need to fuel yourself well. If you're if you have fast food or you know if you don't eat well, obviously in the aftermath of that you're going to feel exactly like the food you just ate. So that might be the reason why you're getting stuck. <laughs> If you can imagine, if you have a big, you know, that, that, that Jeff Bezos two pizza, if you eat those two pizzas, you can imagine you're not going to be doing great work after that area. So, so that's, and, and obviously hydration is a key part of everything. So we're, our brains is predominantly water. So I think, you know, and, and our whole system is predominantly water. When you suboptimal with water, it, it'll bring it right down. And then kind of the last three, move well. Sometimes get up and go for a walk. Just to get out fresh air five minutes, you know, nature and our systems and human evolution, you know, we're, we're designed to move. So honor that. Um think well or thoughts. Sometimes you're stuck in fear loops in your mind. You're going around in that fear loop. You've eliminating belief, driving your thoughts to negative internal dialogue, driving your actions to be, you know, not productive and negative as well. So you need to be aware of that. And step into that and change your internal dialogue to be more positive. Maybe develop some mantras that you can recite yourself in those moments to step away from the fear loop and into what we call the courage loop. Starve, fear, feed, courage. There's um, a Cherokee parable about starve, fear, feed, and courage. I'd encourage, I would encourage the listeners to go ahead and, and Google the Cherokee parable, feed the courage wolf, to get that insight. It's very, very, very powerful. And the last one then is connect well. So socially, you know, be connected to and, and have a real connection with those around you. And, you know, you're really talking about, you know, there's three layers of connection. I, you know, what I say, even within teams, I always try and bring teams down to that bottom layer of connection. The top layer is when you engage in conversation, you're talking about the weather. You're talking about the game. You're not really getting to know the person. You're more or less having a conversation to move on to the next thing in your life. So, so too many teams are at that level. So you've got teams at that level. You, can't, you can imagine that they're not going to do great things together. The next day around is okay to start to be more creative with each other, talk about problems, solutions, solving solutions, and kind of getting that creativity spark, but still they don't really know each other. Still more that the person is holding back and, and not giving, and as a result of that, there's a lack of trust still there. Can't trust someone you can't, you know, you don't really know. So the, you know, where I take teams is into that that bottom layer where they can be vulnerable, they can be themselves, they can share honestly, they can challenge each other honestly. And in that layer, trust is absolutely forged. And I think, you know, you need to replicate that in your life. You need to have those level, that level of conversation and that level of connection with those around you. And that will nourish you, I suppose, and, and support you. And also when it comes to connect well, connect well with nature. So much scientific point, scientific benefits behind just being in nature. You know, the, you know I, there's absolutely insane science that when you look at the stats and the figures behind the benefit of actually surrounding yourself in nature, what it does for your well-being, what it does for productivity, what it actually does for performance, you would absolutely be astounded. And um, so there are six keys, I suppose, six yeah. pillars. I, I, I've rushed through them really quick, but I think hopefully the guys and, and listening will get an insight into it. And that's, I suppose, a rit- ritual that I take into every day that I try and tick those boxes and that supports me to be unstuck. I, Stephen, I love it. Uh, one of the things, just to, as a compliment to what you're saying too, is. Um, Recently, I interviewed uh, Nate Kading. He was a college football kicker for um, the University of Iowa Hawkeyes and then played in the NFL for 10 years. 
And awesome. one one of the first things he talked about too was was breathing, right? It it, it yeah. like that like calming yourself and and basically going back to routine, but like trying to get out of your head about like the game's on the line. It's it's coming down to this play. It's more about here's how I approach my work day to day. And so not only do I love hearing what you're saying about the breathing, I really appreciate the the those those six boxes and making that a part of your your routine yeah. to be better. So I really, really appreciate that. Um, one, one last thing that I, tr- I try to cover with guests too, is the notion of advice and could be you, I mean, you, you, you've, you've already mentioned, you've had a lot of good advice here already. Uh, and you've talked about kind of uh, something you heard from, from a mentor about complex problems. Yeah. Uh, but uh, any, any good advice that uh, you received uh, that's really stuck with you or stealing from Austin Cleon, steal like an artist. Uh, he says, when we're giving advice, we're just talking to our younger self. Uh, so is there advice that you wish you would have had when you were a bit younger on your journey? Very hard question. I suppose um, when you mentioned some quotes there of different things, I, I, I was thinking I was going into my vault of quotes, yeah. that kind of <laughs> philosophies that I kind of yeah. guide me. And I suppose the, you know, there's progress. I think, I mean, nothing cures fear faster than action. So I think, you know, if you're stuck or if there's something holding you back, or I think if you just live your life by just going for it and um, moving forward, I think that's the best way to live life because, you know, one day we won't be here and you don't want to be at the end of life saying, I should have kept moving, I should have moved forward, I should have took action, I should have done what I wanted to do. So I think first and foremost is just I think, you know, get clarity in terms of who you are, what your principle about, you know, and the life you want to live, and then go ahead and just do it. That's, you know, that's it. So I think I won't elaborate too further on that, but it's, it's um, yeah. I love it. Stephen, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to join me on the podcast. It was an absolute pleasure to, uh, to have you here. So uh, I hope in the future we can uh, see each other face to face, not just yeah. digitally. Uh, so I'd, yeah. I'd love to. I'd love to make it to Cork, or if you make it to the the states, I'd love to love to see you in Iowa City. Absolutely, yeah, Matt. So I plan on doing some more work over in the states. So who knows? Might might get there, and um, we might even collaborate. That might be one. Right on. Thank you, yeah. Stephen. Thank you.